Well, open your Bibles, if you will, and or turn it on, whatever you have, and find Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We're in the middle of a series called Ripples. And we're, in this series, we're looking at five ways that we can multiply our lives, five ways that what we do can matter beyond just the immediate time. Today, we're looking at the fourth way to multiply your life as you look for Matthew chapter 20. Let me give you the fourth way, and then you can just... As you're taking notes, we'll build on that. But here's the fourth way you can multiply your life. You can increase the ripple effect of your life when you dare to serve. Dare to serve. See, if you want to live a life that matters, then love people and do what you can to meet their needs. If you want the ripple effect to go out from your life, if, if you want to impact people in a tremendous way, then love people and do what you can to meet their needs. Dare to serve. Now, we know and you know, we all know that this is a real struggle for some people. If we do just what comes naturally, we'll live the kind of life that most people live. A life that's focused on self, a life that is self-centered, self-serving. You see, the world defines greatness in terms of several things. The world defines greatness in terms of, of power, prestige, And position. Many people strive for those three things. Power, prestige, and position. The temptations that we face are often temptations related to one of these three things. The areas that we struggle with are often related to one of these three areas. If you look at the Bible, you'll find out that things haven't changed much in 2,000 years. If you look at the Bible, you'll see that the temptations of mankind are, that we have now are pretty much the temptations that they had then. Jesus defines greatness for us in the story of Matthew chapter 20, where two of his closest disciples came to him. They were driven by a big dream. They, they came to Jesus for a private and secret request. Before we read about that request, though, I want to give you the context before we read Matthew chapter 20. Go back to chapter 19 for the context, verse 16. In chapter 19, verse 16, this is the story of the rich young ruler. This is a story that you're probably very familiar with. Rich young ruler, in verse 16, comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And, and all the way through verse 26, Jesus is answering that question. You know probably the whole story and the answer to that question. And, and it says, the story concludes by, by the man going away. When he heard this, verse 22, the young man heard this. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And this kind of flipped out the disciples. They were so struck by what they just saw and what they just heard. Peter asked a question in verse 27. Peter said, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Peter's thinking in terms of us. He's thinking like you and I think. What will there be for us? You see, we all struggle with that idea, don't we? We all struggle with this concept of self-centeredness and self-focus. What will there be for us? And so Jesus gives him the answer, verse 28. I tell you the truth. This is a key verse. I want you to make sure you, you see this verse. I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man, 
Son of Man, sits on his glorious throne. You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now that sounds pretty good. Verse 29, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. And so I'm sure that got Peter kind of thinking about some things and the rest of the disciples apparently thinking about some things when Jesus said, listen, one day you're going to sit on a throne and I'm going to bless you in ways you can't imagine for what you've done and your faithfulness. Now, that's the context. Skip down to chapter 20, verse 17. And in in chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus, for the third time, at least the third time, predicts his death. Again, we're just trying to get the context, but this is very, very important, beginning of verse 17. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death, and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. You can imagine, can't you, what that must have felt like to hear those words? Imagine the shock, imagine the horror, imagine the uncomfortableness, imagine the questions, imagine the anxiety when you heard those words. For the first time, Jesus used the word crucify. First time that he uses it in the New Testament. Previously, Jesus had mentioned that he would one day be killed, and now he specifies how he will die. He'll be crucified. That word crucified can only mean one thing. Jesus is going to face a very painful, agonizing death. And he'll be executed like a common criminal. Now it's hard to be prepared for what happens next. Look at verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons And kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. I believe that their minds were still fascinated and fastened on what Jesus said in chapter 19, verse 28, that one day you'll sit on a throne. One day you'll you'll have a throne as well. I will sit on a throne, you will sit on a throne, and and their minds were fastened on that. And so, even though Jesus had just told them about him being crucified, the mother of of the sons of Zebedee came to him and said, I've got a favor, I need to ask you something. I've got two boys, and my request is, would you let one sit on your right and one sit on your left when they begin to occupy the thrones? Would you let one be first vice president and let the other be second vice president? I'll let you decide who sits where, but if you could just let one sit on your right and one sit on your left when when you and they are sitting on the thrones. Now, I don't know if if this bothers you at all. It bothers me on several levels. One is that he's just told them about his crucifixion. For the first time, he's used that word, crucify. He's just told them how he's going to die. He's just told them, 
some awful things, and they're concerned about where they're going to be sitting. Not only that, the other thing that bothers me, and maybe it's just me, I don't know if this bothers any of you, why in the world did John and James bring their mother to ask this request? Does that bother anybody else, any other men out there that bothers? Why did James and John bring their mother? But it's very interesting when you start digging into this, why the mother came to make this request. Follow closely. Matthew, Mark, and John all give a list of the women who were at the cross when Jesus was crucified. They all have a list of ladies that were at the cross when Jesus was crucified. All the lists are the same except there's one person that's different in each of those lists. Matthew mentions the mother of the sons of Zebedee, just as it's listed here. That's what Matthew mentions. He mentions that there's these group of ladies, and one of the ladies is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Mark mentions that the lady's name is Salome. John, this is interesting, listen. John states that there's a lady there at the cross who is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, scholars are not positive, but if all of those references are to regarding the same person, that would mean that the mother of Zebedee's son was Jesus' aunt. And James and John were his first cousins. Now we can start to see why mama came with them. You see, they may have well thought, if we are going to sit on thrones, who better to sit at his right and his left than his cousins? I mean, there's a family connection there. Have you ever used family connections for your benefit? Come on, have you? I have. Uh, Lisa's uncle, I've told this story before, but Lisa's uncle Billy used to work for the Washington Redskins. And he got me into a couple of games, and I got to stand on the sidelines of some NFL games. And it was because of that family connection. He gave me... He gave me a football that was used in one of the games. It's, this one's deflated. I don't know if New England used it or not, if it was in one of those games. But he gave me a football, not because of who I am. I got this football, football not because of who I am. I got it because of my family connections. You see, it's, it's, it's wonderful when you know somebody. It pays to know somebody, right? Well, listen to this. When Jesus started talking about a kingdom... And when he started talking about thrones, James and John and their mama decided to play the family card. She said, come on, boys. Let's go talk to my nephew. Hmm. Jesus responds to Aunt Salome, if this is indeed her. Verse 22, Jesus simply looks at James and John and Salome, and he says, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? The phrase drink the cup is a figure of speech, meaning can you undergo this experience? Can you go through this? Can you experience what I'm going to experience? And the reference was to the cross. Remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he say? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. 
So the reference that he was talking about here is the cross. And so Jesus said, you don't understand what you're asking. Can you drink from the cup I'm about to drink from? Do you think you can go through what I'm about to go through? And here's what they said. Exclamation mark. We can. Those are empty words though, weren't they? It's kind of like, some of you could relate to this. Have you ever had kids who wanted a pet and they promised they'd take care of it? You knew those were empty words. You knew that all they were thinking about was the cute little puppy. They were not thinking about what the puppy would do on the floor. They were not thinking about having to take the puppy out. They were not thinking about trying to wash the puppy or anything out. All they were thinking about was that cute little puppy. And they promised you. They knew that they could take care of it. They promised you they'd take care of it. They'd walk the puppy. They'd feed the puppy. They'd bathe the puppy. But you knew that was empty words. I get the same idea when Jesus said, Can you drink this cup? And these James and John said with anticipation and excitement, We can. Sure we can, but they weren't thinking about the cross. They were thinking about the thrones. Then Jesus, in verse 23, looked into history and he made this proclamation. Jesus said to them, to James and John, You will indeed drink from my cup. was able to see what they couldn't yet see. said, you will indeed one day drink from my cup. History tells us that James was the very first of the apostles to be martyred. John was the last, not to be martyred, but to be exiled. He experienced persecution, and then he was exiled on, on the Isle of Patmos. Jesus was exactly right when he looked at them, perhaps with sadness in his eyes, and said, You will indeed drink from my cup. He goes on to say, look at verse 23. But to sit on my right or or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Now, if we were to put a period there, we would say that was a great story and that was an interesting encounter and there's some things we can learn from that. But as is so often the case, that's not where the story stops. As is so often the case, word got out what they did. And this is where it really gets good. Somehow, the other ten found out what James and John did. So let's see how the story unfolds now. Verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were, what's that next word, church? They were indignant. With the two brothers. The word indignant indignant means strong resentment. And and I get the idea, and and I've studied this quite some time. I'm not sure that I'm absolutely right, but I think I'm right in this area. I, I think the reason they were indignant was not because James and John were so callous to make a request at such a serious time. I don't think that's why they were indignant. I think they were angry because the two brothers beat them to the punch. I really believe that, that they were mad because James and John got there first. James and John beat them to the punch, and they may have been mad because they recognized that James and John were trying to play the family card to their advantage. In fact, Luke says, when you read Luke's account of this, Luke says, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. 
not only were they indignant, Luke says, actually, there, there was this verbal fight that broke out as they argued about who among them was really the greatest. Now, let that dark picture sink in for just a moment. These men who were so close to Jesus were fighting over power, prestige, and position while Jesus was walking toward the cross. Let the darkness of that settle in for a moment. These men were arguing about who was the greatest. They were arguing about power and prestige and position while the Lord Jesus was walking towards Jerusalem and the cross. Now before you get too high and mighty about that, that you would never do something like that, let me just say, he who is without sin cast the first stone. You see, I really believe, maybe in my life, maybe in yours as well, we too often get called up in the quest to make it to the top that we forget to reach out to those who are at the bottom with the gospel. In our quest to get these things, in our quest to build these things, in our quest to build our reputation and to build our resume and to all of those things that we strive for, in our quest to get more, we often simply just overlook those who Jesus is trying to walk towards with the gospel. Verse 25. Jesus was very patient with these men. He called the twelve together. He did not give up on these men who seemed to be so unteachable. Verse 25. Jesus called them together. <laughs> it's really kind of funny if you think about it. They're all standing around arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus is trying, like, getting the little kids, y- y'all shut up, come here, man, come here. Y'all be quiet, come here, come here. John, sit down, come, come here. Peter, be quiet, come here, come here. We, we need to talk. Here's what he says. Verse 26, verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. That's right. That's the way the system works. That's what they were looking for. They wanted to be on a throne so that they could lord it over people. They wanted to have their position so they could be the people in authority. They, that, that's exactly what they were striving for. And so Jesus said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. That's right. I'm looking forward to the day when I sit on your right or on your left and I'm going to have that kind of authority. Then in verse 26, here's what Jesus said. Not so with you. If you mark your Bible, I'm going to ask you to underline those four words. Not so with you. And you might even want to write in the column this little note. The negative there in the Greek language is emphatic. It literally says in the Greek language, not so shall it be among you. It's as if, in the Greek language, it's as if you're underlining it, you're highlighting the the not so. Not so shall it be among you. Jesus said, this is not what I want you to strive for. This is not what I want you to pursue. This is not the kind of life I'm asking you to live. Not 
so among you. And then he explains true greatness. It's a complete reversal of popular opinion as to what greatness is. Look how he describes it, verse 26 and 27. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your what, church? Must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. This is a complete reversal of popular opinion as to greatness, both then and now. See, the worldly standard of greatness is gauged by the number of people who serve you. This is the way the worldly standard works. There's you. And all of these people, the greater you are, the more people you have serving you. That's the worldly standard of greatness. The higher you go in the company, the more people you have under you. The the greater responsibilities you have in life, the more people you have that have to answer to you. The more money you have, the more control you have, the more people have to give to you. The focus in all of this, the worldly standard of greatness, is gauged by the number of people who serve you. And Jesus said, but that's not the way I want you to live. The kingdom measure of greatness is the number of people that you serve. Jesus said the arrows are supposed to go this way. Kingdom greatness is not the number of people who serve you. Kingdom greatness is based on the number of people that you serve. That's greatness in the Lord's eyes. You see, the world may amass a, uh, or assess a man's greatness by, by the number of people on his or her payroll or, or their academic achievements or the number of committees or boards that they sit on or, or the size of that person's bank account or the neighborhood that they live in or the the size of their house, the square footage of their house, and all of those kind of things. But Jesus, in his assessment of greatness, says those things are irrelevant. Jesus measures greatness in terms of service, not status. Did you hear that? He measures greatness in terms of service, not status. God determines your greatness by how many people... You serve, not by how many people serve you. This is the standard that Jesus himself followed. Look at verse 28. He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So guys, I'm asking you to do what I'm doing. He, he calls us to do what he himself did, living like a servant. Jesus said, this is the, the, the thing that I have tried to do in my lifetime. This is the way I have tried to live. I have come, even the Son of Man have come, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So what do we do with this text and how do we live it out? I want to give you three things real quickly. Write these down. Number one, 
If you want to live out this text, if you want to say, okay, how do I make this practical? How do I make this personal? I have the tendency to strive for power and prestige and position. I, I just, I'm like every other person. I, I want those things. I sometimes crave those things. I work for those things. But I recognize today that, that this is not the model I want to live by. This is the model I need to follow. So how do I make this practical? How do I make this personal? How do I live out this text? Here's three things. Number one. Step out of the spotlight. Step out of the spotlight. I'm not suggesting that you have to give up a leadership position, but I am suggesting that you move yourself out of the spotlight and dare to serve others. Don't make everything that you have, don't make everything about what you have or what you did or or the titles that you have. Step out of the spotlight and start serving others. You let that one word picture sink in. If you remember that one word picture, step out of the spotlight. Step out of the spotlight. Start serving others. Number two, if God starts using you, don't forget that you're a servant and nothing more. You're a servant and nothing more. You know, for all of us, it's pretty easy to get a case of the creeping self-importance. We begin to think that we're stars. We begin to think that we're somebody. We begin to think that we have status. We begin to think that, that we're above the little jobs and the dirty work. And we begin to think that's for other people. Others can handle that. We, we begin to think that we're higher than we are. But if you'll read the letters of the Apostle Paul, you'll see him as he starts his letters over and over again. He begins his letters this way. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. What that bondservant means? Slave. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. See, the higher you go, the more you have to remind yourself who you really are. In God's kingdom, you are a servant and nothing more. And that's not a a belittlement. That's recognizing that we have a task. Our task is not to seek power, prestige, and position. Our task is to use our lives to bring people into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and to bring God glory. Our task is to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, just like he was a servant who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's the third thing. Trying to live out this text, make it personal. The third thing is this. Serving involves sacrifice. You see, the ultimate test of servanthood is what you're willing to give up for somebody. And of course, in verse 28, it shows us what Jesus was willing to give up. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and here's what he gave up, to give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom means the price paid to redeem a slave. Jesus paid the ransom's price for your sin. He paid the price of his own life to free you from the slavery of sin. There's a song I was listening to yesterday. It says, his wounds paid my ransom. And I want you to circle a word in your Bibles there in verse 28. That's a very important word. It's a small word, but it's a very important word. I'm going to ask you to circle this word if you mark your Bibles. I'll tell you where it is. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, And circle the word for, for many. 
for means in place of. He gave his life in place of. He gave his life as a substitute for many. That's called substitutionary atonement. You know uh, what Jesus did for you? Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a sacrifice in behalf of all of us who were called up in the slavery of sin. And he says, and I'm giving my life for you in place of you so that you don't have to. And that's good news for all of us. But it's a reminder that when you try to serve in God's kingdom, sometimes it'll cost you something. Sometimes service involves sacrifice. I want you to bow your heads for a moment. I want to talk to you for a minute before we close the service. I want you to listen to another text. With your heads bowed, I I just didn't want you to be focused on anything else. I want you to listen to another text in chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 5 through 8. Just listen. It says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Sir, do you know Jesus? Ma'am, are you certain in your heart that you know Jesus? His wounds paid your ransom. He died in your place for Today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to trust Christ, to turn your life, to repent of your sin, and turn to Christ and Him alone for salvation. And if you do already know Christ as Savior, today might be the day where you decide, I need to stop living for those things that don't matter. I need to stop living and striving for those things that don't have an eternal significance. I need to follow the example of Jesus and live for the kingdom. I need to serve Him and serve others. Father, help us to do that. May we serve You by serving others. May You give us a heart that is humble. May You give us a desire that is clean and pure. May our lives be a a life that's lived to serve those who do not yet know You. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.